Hello, Shumai. This is Bryn Tervel, and these are the books of my life. So it turns out that it's actually quite tricky interviewing an opera singer. Don't get me wrong, Bryn Tervel was excellent value throughout this episode of Books of My Life, but when a bass baritone hits their stride, it's not all that easy to stop them. Um, Bryn wanted to talk about all sorts of stuff, including his childhood and path, the very pinnacle of opera. But I'm not convinced books were at the top of his list. And no matter, we did get some recommendations out of him eventually, and I at least received a lesson in how to pronounce his surname properly. It's all about rolling that R, apparently. Bryn is just one of those people who is brimming over with life and good humour. I really hope it's as much fun to listen to this episode of Books of My Life as it was to record it. Uh, but hang on, before we go any further, just a very quick shout out to say, please do subscribe to the Books of My Life podcast. We'd love to have you with us every week and we've got some great guests coming up. And don't forget to send us your own choices as well, whatever they are, good, bad or ugly, to Books of My Life at the national.ae. That'd be amazing. Back to Bryn. His first language was Welsh. My first question was, what on earth is a young Welsh lad reading growing up in the valleys? Uh, well, uh, we were reading uh, Welsh authors, uh, obviously. Yeah. And um, this was something that we were having in, in school because our education was through the medium of Welsh. Everything was in Welsh, all the lessons, history, geography, maths, apart from English, of course, <laughs> you're taught in English. But yes, th those were the, the staple uh, diet, uh, the, the books that we were given by our teachers. And can you remember the first book that uh, that really moved you, had a, had a profound effect on you? Uh, I would say that one that had a profound effect on me was this wonderful cycle of stories uh, that comes from Wales called the Mabinogion. Okay. And that was a book that is of our time, most probably it's the Game of Thrones. Uh, it's it's a, a book that composers should be writing about because of the tremendous stories. And we were given that book as well as part of our historical element uh, in Wales. So vividness, you know, the painted pictures, it gave you mountains and rivers and seas and, and uh, uh, you know, giants and, and birds that, uh, men that turned into birds. And it was just, okay. it was just uh, uh, something that ignited uh, such a very keen interest and knowing that most of it happened locally as well to where I lived. So it created something visual for me on the farm in North Wales thinking, wow, this has happened here. You know, when you're treading through rivers and, uh, and caves and mountains as well. Gosh, the Welsh Game of Thrones is, uh, is, is a fairly good endorsement, I suppose. As a, as, as a good one for the, uh, for, the, for the front cover, I suppose. Well, I, I've um, talked to many people... Stephen Sondheim, for instance, uh, is a great lover of the Mabinogion and has always said to me when we work together that he wants to write someday uh, one of the scenes out of, of that collection of stories. So tell me a little bit about life growing up on, on, on the farm. Were you, uh, were you the first person in the family to, to start singing? Was that something that was part of, uh, part of family life or, or, or was that sort of a bit of an outlier move from you? Well, um, as with any uh, Welsh family, I would say, not to pigeonhole the Welsh uh, where singing is concerned, but my grandparents sang from both sides. My parents sang, my, my dad has a glorious bass baritone voice and my, my mother's a soprano and they both sing in different choirs. 
so there was always singing uh, within the farm. Uh, my brother liked to play the guitar, and he sang with me for a, a couple of years until the side of his artistic endeavor went to, towards painting rather than towards the musical element. So I took over that mantle. I'm amazed sometimes to think the roster of conductors that I've performed with is quite astounding. I, I have to pinch myself even to think how lucky I've been. But uh, if I tell you a little anecdote, in 1988, I did a competition in, in North Wales. The Nationalist Edward was there. And one of the judges was Sir Geraint Evans, mm -hmm. who was, of course, one of Wales' most prominent opera singers. And it's the first time that he heard me. So I started with a catalogue aria by Leporello from Don Giovanni. Um, I don't know if you know it, but it started, Madamina, il catalogo è questo. And he said, thank you. So he stopped me after four bars. So I was saying to myself, is that because I was good or it was bad? Um, so th thankfully, I was put on the stage by Sir Geraint Evans. And then two weeks later, phone call, Sir Geraint on the phone. I've arranged an audition for you to go to North London to sing to Sir George Schulte. Be there at three o'clock and have two arias prepared. And I said, fantastic. Uh, I am free and I'll find a pianist and, and thank you very much. So he opened the door for my first international uh, engagements with Sir George Schulte. And Sir George Schulte, may I say, made careers. So uh, if you sang with him, people noticed. Because that was a massive break. So, so, so what was happening before that? Were you sort of jobbing around trying to find bits and pieces? I was just out of college. Uh, I had won the Kathleen Ferrier Memorial Scholarship, which yeah. was amazing, which is £5,000 for somebody who's just left college. And of course, I needed to pay for singing lessons, uh, for language lessons. I needed simple things like a pair of black shoes, uh, a tuxedo, tails. And these things cost for a young singer. And I wasn't going to go to my parents and say, look, can I borrow some money to buy a suit? I wanted to do it by myself. Uh, so that 5000 uh, of course, it's a prestigious award. And I think, in essence... The Kathleen Ferry Memorial Shots, she knew that young singers wanted money. I think that's the reason for that competition, but you have to be on the top of your form to win it. So exactly, it was really important that I uh, then started uh, doing wonderful competitions, which then went into the Cardiff Singer of the World. Mm -hmm, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and that, that was, I would say, my biggest break into the operatic profession. Not to get jobs, may I add. To get auditions, so I still had to be prepared and come with the goods. Yeah, it's interesting because I, 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 I saw you said in a, in a previous interview that um, you know that might seem like the big break, but actually was a slow process. It wasn't. Yeah. You know, it wasn't sort of overnight in that way. And, and, and yeah. did you sort of ever lose lose heart? Ever ever lose the the belief that you could do this? I was after Cardiff Singer of the World in 1989. I could see Dmitry Khvorosovsky, who won that competition that year. Uh, he was flying. Uh, he was singing everywhere, concerts and operas, and he started recording for Philips, and I was thinking, what have I done? Uh, but I was still gradually auditioning. I, for, for that year, most probably I did over 40 auditions 
for opera houses. And I got two jobs out of that 40. So for the young singers that are thinking they're, they're constantly doing auditions, don't worry. It's, it's going to happen. If you keep yourself prepared, you know, style, interpretation, work with your singers, your language coaches, get everything as perfect as you possibly can, somebody might react to that voice. And that voice, may I add also, is still developing. So I had Figaro in Hamburg, and I had, I mean, Figaro by Mozart in Hamburg, in the marriage of Figaro, and I had Donner in Das Rheingold, the first opera of the Ring Cycle by Wagner in Chicago. And that's where the snowball started rolling. And, and was being a singer something that was uh, accepted within school? I mean, I know you've mentioned before that yeah. it could be quite nerve-wracking seeing yes. peers of yours sort of sneering beforehand. Was that something that you had to, that you had to deal with on a daily basis? Definitely, undoubtedly. Uh, in, in a sense, I had to uh, discover what being a musician was all about. I, I enjoyed singing. Uh, there was nothing about it. I couldn't hide it. Um, but I would develop a, a very a, a keen aptitude maybe for ball games. So rugby and soccer and basketball and cricket became a staple diet within the schools. And I was pretty good at it as well. You know, I had the height for sure. for rugby. I had uh, the technique for football. You know, I kept, I kept a couple of famous footballers out of the team I'm sure. a couple of times. Um <laughs> But famous, famous footballers now or famous at the time? Oh, from the past. There was one called Malcolm Allen. He played for uh, Watsford in the beginning. Then he went to Newcastle for a bit. Uh, and uh, he was younger than me as well. So he was quicker, was much faster. Say, could, could, have, could have been a very different career for you, Brent. Could have been, yes. Although I was heading towards being a, a fireman or a policeman. Uh, but singing somehow took over. Uh, and even in school, I was competing and I brought maybe other people to sing as well. You know, the ones that would snigger in the background are the ones now that have turned everything around and they absolutely love singing now. Uh, and they want to be a part of, of the journey that I've had. Mm -hmm. So they come and listen to me in operas. I'm sure. By Wagner, by Strauss, by Mozart. I just cannot believe it that this was the sniggering lad in the corner saying, "Hey, you shouldn't be doing that." You know, it's not, it's not, it's not very cool for you to be singing an aria or, or singing a Welsh song by Marion Williams. So okay. I took it in my stride. And no, and no hard feelings towards these people nowadays. Absolutely not, uh, because I see the, the their their turnaround into actually themselves joining male voice choirs or mixed choirs and, and enjoying singing themselves. You know? Okay, so Bryn, let's go back to the books. We've been uh, way off topic. Um, <laughs> as we discussed, you moved to London in 1984. Um, what books did you take with you? Well, my book life was then uh, taken over by mostly scores uh, of learning uh, new operatic roles. Um, so therefore, I, I think they were mostly shelved. Uh, apart from uh, now and again, bringing out a, a, a football uh, book, Sir Alex Ferguson, for instance. I'm a huge Manchester United fan. So I would read biographies. Uh, this would be something that would take me away from having to learn 
Wagner arias or, or Verdi arias and and the, the reading of books about composers Mozart for instance I, I remember there was one book that I that I read I was a big fan of Glenn Gould the pianist mm-hmm. and uh, it's a book by Bazana and it it talked really about how Glenn Gould developed his career uh, the path that he took um why uh, sometimes uh, the way he played certain pieces was very different to other people. You know, Bernstein famously said before a concert, a concert that, you know, his interpretation, this is nothing to do with my conducting. This is all the mind of Glenn Gould. So I was reading books about performers. There's a book by, uh, that was written about Tito Gobbi, the famous baritone. So I loved reading things like that. It talked about the roles that he'd performed, and this was something that I was learning myself. Tito Gobbi, of course, sang uh, Scarpia many times himself, and there's one phrase that I always remembered reading in his book, Tutto fa brodo, everything makes a soup, all the ingredients that go into that pot is very important to your characterization. So therefore, he he thought that whatever Scarpi was wearing, the shoes, uh, the wigs, the the dress code, uh, all made an important impact into how he portrayed that character. And of course, one of the books that I really absolutely adored was the end of Sir Geraint Evans' career. Uh, we, we go a full uh, 180 turn now. Uh, and uh, his, his autobiography as well uh, made s- such a huge impact on me on how that generation of singers had developed uh, their international careers and plowed the way into how we now develop our singing careers internationally. Yeah, which so nicely leads me on to my next question, which is, you know, I think you're uh, 53 now, am I right in saying? Yes. Um, and, 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 and an absolute world of experience. Um, is there a book that you've read recently that you wish you could give to your younger self, which you know might change the way that you that you look at the world or or, or do things when you were a younger man? Um, no, I, I don't think there is a book that I would give. But if I was to learn about people and um, you know, how one lives uh, is very important. You know, we are constantly traveling as singers into the sometimes the most beautiful hotels and beautiful apartments and in a way in a sense very fortunate of of how things have developed in one's career um you meet amazing people surely on the board of an opera house there's going to be somebody that's playing golf so i will be playing golf in the best golf courses in the world it's really incredible so, so there was one radio program i did in New York, and I met this writer, and I hadn't heard of him. Uh, his name was Frank McCourt, and he was part of uh, of this radio program. So I was listening to him speak, and he had just written a book called Angela's Ashes. Of course, yeah. And uh, so I was there in the same room as the writer himself. In a sense, that would be like me being in the same room as Mozart having performed the role of the marriage of Figaro, the Figaro itself. It doesn't happen very often. You know, I sang the role of Sweeney Todd many times, mm-hmm. as you mentioned once with Emma Thompson. Um, being in the same room as Stephen Sondheim is quite daunting. Uh, he's writing notes and you're thinking, is he writing notes about me? And then he comes to your dressing room and tells you what he thinks your performance was. 
uh, he gives you corrections here again. So I had met Frank McCourt. All I wanted to do was take that book home and read it. And of course, so it's a desperately sad book, poverty stricken, and and in a, in a sense, it gave you a feeling of how lucky you actually are. And would that would that be because uh, one of my questions is always, what's the last book that made you cry? And I and I suspect it might it might have been that one. <laughs> Undoubtedly, yes. Uh, even when the movie came out, you you feel sometimes that you know how does it work? You see the movie first, or you or you read the book after. You know, these are uh, uh, incredible moments in your in your life. Uh, and indeed, that was uh, one of the books that uh, it make, it made a big impression. But I think threefold meeting the writer as well was something incredible. I remember Frank said that he had this pair of corduroy um, trousers on, purple. And he'd had this pair of trousers for over 40 years. Wow. And you could see it on the trousers, you stains and holes in the sides. And, but he loved that particular pair of trousers. And in a sense, I'm a little bit like that. You know, I'll have a T-shirt that I've worn for 40 years. And there's this man who's um, had such a success with one book. You know, J.K. Rowling must be, uh, I wonder if she has a pair of shoes that she's had for 40 years and still wears them now. So fame hasn't, hasn't changed you then? No, yeah. no, uh, maybe uh, I like to buy my R.M. Williams boots and I'll have them for 30 years because they're good boots. I'll buy a pair of church's shoes uh, as my concert platform shoes. I know I'll pay 400 pounds for them, but I know I'll have 20 years out of them. So that's something uh, incredible. Bryn, you're obviously on the road a lot. You're away from home a lot. Um, what do you read? When you're uh, when you're away and backstage, what, what what are you reading at the moment, for example? Well, at the moment, I have my wonderful um, uh, machine that could take books and not having to carry things now. Um, it's a Kindle that you mean? No, um, it, it 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 could be my iPad or it could <laughs> be my Kindle. Um, my Kindle seems to be uncharged. All the time. Um, but uh, in the past couple of months, I've been reading a lot about Wagner. Uh, so uh, Wagner has come in my life quite early. And it's finished also quite early in my life. Because I, I know I won't be singing Wotan in the ring cycle again. I know I won't be singing Hans Sachs in the Meistersinger of Nuremberg again. So these are the books that are, it's kind of journey back to, to remind me of how things were. Maybe I should have read them before I did these opera pieces, by the way. But um, yeah, I have them in my, uh, in my various machines. So, so if, if, if your uh, time singing Wagner is coming to an end, what, what, what happens next? I still have uh, operatic experiences that I can return to, like the, the operas I've sung for the past 30 years. So they're always within your uh, diary. There's a Flying Dutchman that I can still sing from uh, Wagner itself. It's the shortest but most dramatic of the operas. I've, I've got that in Japan next year. I've got it in Munich next year. So the, uh, these are plotting uh, how you're going to develop your career from 53 years old onwards. It's quite interesting. But I have uh, just ordered a book uh, about the journey uh, of uh, Schubert's, Franz Schubert's amazing work, The Winterizer. 
it's a work that I've kept away for for quite a while, but uh, I need to learn that piece now, and I I, I need to start learning uh, about the work itself. You know, Schubert was famous to uh, doing his Schubertiad evenings in places like Kremsmünster, Steyr, Salzburg. He'd take his singer Michael Vogel with him to sing these songs to people. They wanted them published. They wanted money. They wanted to carry on their livelihood, carry on writing. Um, it's a little bit like Don Quixote, isn't it? The books are burnt, but uh, it, they'll still be alive. Of course, yeah. So um, it, it sounds a little bit um, disconcerting to, to somebody who's uh, an avid reader of books that I'm now reading books about things for my future and things from my past. No, not disconcerting at all. I think that's what it's all about, really. Um, Bryn, you've told us some lovely stories today. Um, I'm sure you'd be fantastic value at a dinner party, but I'm going to ask you about huh. your dream literary dinner party. Who would be the three authors, dead or alive, that you'd want to bring along? Well, um, I, maybe I can bring the musical element into it as well. I would certainly have um, Shakespeare, because I have sang so many of his uh, works uh, in different composers, in different guises, and from uh, uh, Gerald Finzi to Vaughan Williams to all, all the magnificent English composers. So Shakespeare would be there. Uh, he must have been such an incredible storyteller. And uh, uh, maybe a little bit like Wagner. You, you still don't know how, what kind of a man he would have been. Um, I would then choose Boito, Arrigo Boito, uh, as a writer that wrote the libretto to Falstaff's, uh, uh, you know, this magnificent opera Falstaff written by Giuseppe Verdi, uh, a libretto that takes uh, so many uh, anecdotes out of different plays, uh, such a clever uh, uh, libretto that he gave for Falstaff to, for Verdi to write his last opera, this octogenarian in Milan, in a hotel, giggling most probably with this uh, piece of, of a glorious, written, uh, uh, historical, iconic uh, figure of, 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 of a huge man uh, celebrating life through wine, women, and food. And of course, Boito himself was a writer of operas as well. There's a m magnificent opera that he's written uh, about Mephistopheles. So I think those two would certainly be great together. And then I think the last one would be a Welsh writer. Uh, it would have to be maybe Isluin Falkelis, which is uh, a writer that I read a lot of his works through school and as a teenager. Superintendent, I'll certainly do my best <laughs> to organise that. It might be quite tricky. Um, those were, of course, uh, the books of your life. I, I, I do hope it will encourage all of our listeners to do that uh, slightly old-fashioned thing and uh, put their phones down and pick up a book for half an hour or maybe more each day. Taravel. Taravel. With a V. Oh, I, thought, I thought I did have a V. Tervel. 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 Vel. Bryn Tervel. Is that right? Ter. Tervel. Bryn Tervel. Yay! Well <laughs>